Our passage this morning uh, comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I said at the outset, we've been celebrating the season of Advent. Advent means arrival of someone or something significant. And we've been thinking about what it was like to wait for the first coming of Jesus and then reflecting on what it's like to wait for the second coming of Jesus. And I'd like to extend that, even though we're technically beyond the Advent season one week. And uh, in that extension, though, to change our focus a little bit from the arrival of Jesus in his birth to the arrival of Jesus to his mission. to when When he arrives on the scene roughly around 30 years of age, to engage the mission that God had given him to carry out. And one of the things that we have to be struck with right at the outset as Jesus engages his mission is the tone, the note of judgment that is identified here in this passage. So if you look at verse 2, it says that John has come preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 10, Uh, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And then again in verse 12, that the one who is to come will gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And when we see Jesus arriving on the scene with this emphasis of judgment as he begins his mission, it should make us somewhat reflective, uh, somewhat reverent. And we should have a notion of... um, Jesus comes, part of Jesus' arrival is in, gosh, intimidating, in a lack, for, for lack of a better word. 
Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you should be scared, right, that the proper response is simply fear. But I think particularly in the American Christmas tradition, we have the tendency to be all warm and cuddly baby Jesus and goo-goo-gaga and kind of that notion of intimacy and sweetness. Well, Jesus came to do and say hard things. And we haven't heard him well unless we've heard some of those hard things and oriented our life as a result. The challenge, of course, for us is that we have a tendency to fool ourselves, just as the Sadducees and Pharisees in our passage do. They think of themselves as quite righteous. But John calls them out completely, saying, no, you're not righteous individuals. And we'll consider that more in depth. But one of the things we have to wrestle with, to what degree do we fool ourselves, thinking ourselves righteous, patting ourselves on the back, focusing on how unrighteous other people are, and in fact, we perhaps miss the depth of our own lack of righteousness. And so the theme this morning, what we're trying to draw out of this passage in all its fullness, is that um, real, real waiting right, for the coming of the Messiah will always be informed by his mission, which means it will be characterized by an ongoing and never-stopping repentance. Right? Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is what will characterize the church that waits well for the coming of Christ. And so to see that, let's consider these three points. Number one, brood of vipers. Number two, spirit and fire. And number three, John the baptizer. Brood of vipers, spirit and fire, and John the baptizer. Now, John is carrying his ministry out on the fringe of society in the wilderness. People are coming out from Jerusalem and Judea to see him. And suddenly... The, uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees are coming out to see what's happening as well. Now, in order to understand really what's happening in this passage, one of the things one needs to understand is the utter uniqueness of John's baptism. There's nothing in Israelite history or Jewish tradition that really precedes this kind of baptism. Now, Jewish people had some ceremonial washings that they would go through, and some of those became pretty popular by Jesus' day. But this is a once-for-all sort of baptism in order that's um, instigated or provoked by the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. The only thing that comes anywhere near is what would have the kind of ceremony that would have happened if a Gentile was converting to Judaism. It would have been a once-for-all baptism to mark that transition of their faith. So what John's doing is, is terribly unique. It's, uh, it's really fascinatingly unknown in the Greco world. You know, this idea of repentance, this idea of confessing sins, wasn't something that was seen in other religions at the time. Yes, you might go to make a sacrifice to a, a Greek god in order to get that Greek god to do something on your behalf, but you weren't informed by an ethic, per se, that you were trying to adhere to, in part because the Greek gods themselves didn't have any ethic. They were doing in the fables and stories what they wanted to all the time. So it's, it's particularly unique in Israelite history that such a strong part of Israel's story is the ethic that God hands down. And then even in this, this baptism, this notion of repentance, this notion of if you want to be close to God, you must be confessing your sins, as it says in verse 6, and then repenting, turning away from those sins in a new direction. Now, that makes it surprising that the Pharisees and Sadducees show up here. Why? Because the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't think they had anything to repent of. Everything we know about them is that they think they are supremely righteous, that they are defining what it means to be righteous for Israel at the time, 
and calling everybody else out on their unrighteousness. And so why would they think that they need a baptism of repentance? So they've probably shown up partially out of curiosity. Right? A legitimate prophet hasn't been seen in Israel for nigh 400 years. And suddenly people are going out in droves to see the ministry of this guy, John. So they're curious, and also they're keeping tabs on the political scene. If John, this new guy, is all of a sudden gaining a, a following amidst the religious people of Israel, and particularly that region, then that's going to upset the balance of power for the Sadducees and Pharisees. So they've gone out to keep an eye on things. But John is not fooled, and he's not subtle about his disdain for the Sadducees and Pharisees. He has some pretty strong language for them. In verse 7, he calls them a brood of vipers. Sometimes people say, well, he's calling them children of Satan, which is possible, but John is not using the words from Genesis for serpent that we would expect him to use if he's making that point. And actually, this is a pretty common insult in the first century. Way back in the 5th century B.C., a Greek writer-philosopher named Herodotus uh, wrote that certain kinds of snakes at birth, eat their way out of their mother, killing their mother in the process. Now, that's an odd comment. We're not sure really why he made it, because in the natural world, that's not true. It doesn't really happen. But it, the, the notion stuck and became a pretty highly evolved insult, which carried the sense of, you are so evil that you would devour your own mother. And it was, it was a pretty nasty, very direct thing to say to someone. John is not trying to hide his disdain, but calls the Pharisees and Sadducees evil to the extent that they would consume their own mother. Verse 8, he goes on to tell them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, which of course means that he doesn't believe they're keeping fruit and bearing with repentance. And then uh, anticipating where perhaps they might go or where they have taken their confidence, he moves immediately to undermine their sense of grace and election. Interesting. Those are words that are pretty familiar to us. But what John uh, says to them, uh, if you look at verse 9, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What the Sadducees and Pharisees might have said is something like this. Listen, we know that we're righteous because we've been chosen by God. We were chosen to be Israel we're chosen to be children of Abraham. We are God's favored people. Thus we are, if anyone is righteous, we're righteous. And John says, no, you can't presume upon God's favor towards you in choosing you to be part of Israel because God can make Israel out of stones. They're presuming upon God's grace, which frankly is something that we particularly in our tradition struggle with. We, we make a... a enormous emphasis on God's grace. We say that God had to approach us that we couldn't approach God. Right? We were too blinded and too much in our sin. And then perhaps in that sometimes we say, well, if we've been chosen, then everything's settled and I'm good to go. And perhaps I don't need to pay attention as much to the fruit that I'm bearing. And so in those ways, perhaps we have the danger to run the same roads, the same track as the religious leaders uh, presented here. And so the question for us, as John poses the question to the Pharisees and Sadducees, is how does one really understand the difference between good fruit and bad fruit? How do you know your fruit is good? 
How do you recognize that it's bad? How do you take stock of the fruit that is in your life? Uh, As we considered, really, in the children's lesson, that idea of taping false fruit on a broken-down tree uh, comes from a a biblical counselor named Paul Tripp. Many of you are probably familiar with some of his work, and he was a professor of mine back in the day. But he would always tell the story of, you know, imagine a woman who gets this tree as a centerpiece of her yard and is having the neighborhood over, but it hasn't borne any fruit. And so what does she do? She goes and buys a bunch of fake fruit, and she staples it onto the tree so that it has the appearance of being a healthy tree in her yard. Now, the problem, of course, exists somewhere in the soil, in that chemistry, and what the tree is or is not getting. But the woman doesn't care because all she cares about is the appearance. She'd prefer to have a tree that looks good than a tree that actually is good and healthy. Her fruit isn't good in any sense. It's fake. And perhaps we might even say uh, rotten in that sense. And so Tripp came up with an aphorism that he uses frequently to describe this notion, which is bad root, bad fruit. Good root, good fruit. What he means by that is the tree, the health of the fruit that is produced, depends on what? Depends on what the roots are sunken into. Right? If your roots are sunk into selfishness and to greed and to the things of this world and to the flesh, then the fruit that's produced will inevitably be rotten. But if your roots are sunk into God and love of God and love of neighbor and the word and prayer and the spirit, then inevitably your fruit will be something that is healthy and good. Now, frankly, I don't, need to, I don't think I need to labor to make this point. If you only think of some of the people that you've known over the span of your life who you consider to be particularly righteous, who you consider to be bearers of good fruit, where are their roots sunk? You know that their roots exist in the things of God and things that produce that fruit in their lives. Or on the other hand, if you took stock of your own life, I want you to think of a time in which you've borne bad fruit. We all have those seasons where the fruit being born in our life is pretty rotten. Nobody would take a bite of that fruit. And during that season of your life, where were your roots? Where were they sunk? Right, Not in the gospel, right? but in something else that you thought would deliver uh, something to you. And so how, how do we move toward that good fruit? How do we see that borne out? You know, fruit cannot be manufactured, as I said with the kids. You can't simply wake up one day and say, oh, I'm making good fruit today. Watch how good my fruit will become. If you do that, you fall exactly into the trap that the Pharisees and Sadducees have. So if it doesn't work that way, how does it work in light of the gospel? Well, this brings us to point two, which is spirit and fire. John is on the scene, and he is proclaiming that one greater than himself is coming. In fact, so great that he's unworthy to untie or to carry the sandal of that individual. Which know that in this time period, in the ancient world, the lowliest task of the lowliest servant was to handle footwear. And so John's saying, I am not uh, qualified to be the lowest of low servants unto the one who is coming. 
He says that this one who is coming, which of course is Jesus, is bringing a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as a bit intense. Being baptized by spirit and fire. Who in the world could withstand such a baptism? And why are those things needed? Well, spirit, because the spirit of God is what's needed to unite us back to God the Father. And fire, because fire is the agent of permanent transformation. It burns away the dross and yields something new, like as in a forge. And so this is what the one who is coming is bringing. But it's a bit of a scary image. Now the really odd thing about this passage is that as Jesus arrives on the scene and John recognizes him as the one to come, Jesus arrives to do what? He arrives to be baptized. Why? We've already said that John's baptism is a baptism of what? Repentance. It's for the confession of sins. It's for one to turn from sin toward righteousness and preparation for the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Well, of what does Jesus need to repent? Of what does Jesus need to confess? Why in the world is Jesus pursuing this baptism? You get the sense, uh, right? John in 14, he knows this doesn't make any sense. He says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus replies to him, let it be so now, for thus it is fulfilling, is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, how does the baptism of Jesus, in this case, fulfill all righteousness? Theologians have actually debated this at great length. And I'd say that the majority of theologians come down in a place where they think what is happening is that Jesus is engaging a solidarity with his people. In other words, he's come to embrace Israel on their terms as he also comes to, uh, to represent Israel in that place. Uh, it would be, um, boys and girls, imagine that your brother, if you have a brother or sister, got in terrible trouble and your parents deliberated how to punish them. And your brother was sentenced to eat nothing but broccoli for three days. They, yeah, I know. This brother had done something seriously wrong. And on the second day, you see your brother weeping in the kitchen, sitting over the breakfast of broccoli, but it's now noon, and it's just gotten wilty and soft and mushy, and he knows he still has to eat it. And so what do you do? You sit down with him out of compassion, and you eat some of the broccoli with him. Now, you're not being disciplined. You're not in trouble. But out of love and compassion, you're participating in his state of affairs, right, to let him know that you're with him. That's something like what's happening at Jesus' baptism, that he's identifying with Israel, and then at the end when he's declared to be God's son, which means that he's declared to be to take the place or the role of Israel itself as a nation, right? He becomes Israel's uh, champion uh, in that sense. And so um, Jesus identifies with the people. He enters the solidarity to the extent that we begin to realize that, you know, baptism by fire and the Spirit in one sense points forward 
and has its fulfillment in Pentecost, right, with the outpouring of the Spirit and the flames that appear over the heads of those who are gifted with the ability to speak other languages. But there's also a sense in which there's a baptism of fire, an ordeal that has to be gone through in order for redemption to be effected. And by Jesus engaging solidarity with the people and then being declared by God the Son in whom he is well pleased, he takes on the role that he will enter the baptism of fire, which is his death, that we might enjoy his resurrection. Paul spells this out for us in uh, Romans 6, which is one of my favorite uh, passages on baptism. And Paul writes of the nature of what happens in baptism. Listen to verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul is baptized, he's buried in death, so that we might be raised in his resurrection. Jesus takes our death so that we might have his life. And this is where we begin to realize that the real problem with fruit is, is that we often look in the wrong place to try to see it made manifest. Fruit doesn't come from being able to make good fruit. Fruit comes from roots that are sunk in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Paul is saying in Romans 6, right, to really be unified to Christ is to be baptized in his death and resurrection. And that's where life comes. If that's where one's roots are sunk, then fruit by the very nature of the relationship, will simply be prolific. Right? Imagine planting a vineyard in the richest soil ever known on the face of the earth so that you essentially don't have to tend it. Fruit simply is born of it. That's the notion of being planted deeply in union with Christ will automatically produce good fruit. Right? It's not that it doesn't require our participation, but that's where the fruit comes from rather than us focusing on fruit. So often, and ironically, Good fruit isn't really produced by focusing on good fruit. You can't wake up and say, I'm going to focus on having good fruit. I'm going to go out and make a bunch of good fruit. It really is manufactured by focusing on Christ and sinking our roots deep in him. You see the difference? If we focus on fruit right, and run out and say, okay, John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What am I going to do today to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, now I'm all about bearing something so that I receive something in return. But if I realize that, oh, that's not where the place to begin. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance really means that I repent and run to Christ. And as my roots are sunk into him, then I realize I've already gotten, received what I wanted. And out of that fruit can, can flow, it can grow, it can be produced. Right? Because it's no longer an economy of scarcity. It's an economy of overabundance. If I produce fruit in order to be loved, which is a great summary of any kind of idolatry, I'll never be satisfied. But if out of the love I've received in Christ, my fruit grows, then that's going to be one healthy garden, bearing a whole, whole lot of good fruit. And that's the difference that occurs here. Now, again, it's not that it's not without participation. But you've got to understand the gospel here and how the gospel works to produce real fruit, not a fake kind of fruit. 
and how it's the result of something rather than the way that you earn something. Now, that's not to say I don't think we have something to learn here about our participation. And this brings us to our third point, which is John the, the baptizer. I've always been annoyed that we call him John the Baptist, which makes it sound like he's part of a denomination. And nothing against any, any denomination, but he's, he's known as for his action, right, what he was doing. He's John the baptizer. And fascinatingly, you know, only two Gospels tell us about the birth of Jesus. All four Gospels tell us about John the Baptist. I just did it, baptizer. Right? He's a tremendously significant figure in, um, in the story of unfolding redemption. What makes him so significant? Well, in part that he is so, so, not un, he's so profoundly unremarkable from standards of status or success in our society. In verse 4, we're told that he wears camel's hair. It's a rough, kind of um, hard fabric that you would wear if you worked in the outskirts, you know, kind of in, if you were a farmer, and it was the clothing of the poor. But it's also, if you, you know, if you are, particularly if you're Jewish in the first century and you, somebody says there's a prophet wearing camel's hair, Immediately you think Elijah. Right? And the prophet said that Elijah must come again before the arrival of the Messiah. And Matthew is telling us that indeed Elijah has come, not in a literal sense, but the mantle, the prophetic mantle of Elijah has been taken up by John the Baptist. And he plays that similar, similar role. But he's not only dressed in camel hair. Right? His diet consists only of locusts and honey, which again... Was the, was the diet of the extremely poor. You're a scavenger looking for insects and trying to dress them up with a little bit of honey that you find in the wilderness. It's also kind of a, um, was thought of as a particularly devoted diet. Um, you know, we don't live in a world where part of our religious ethic is our diet, right? at least not in the sense that it was for Israel. And so to, be, to limit oneself just to locusts and honey was an act of holiness, an act of commitment, an act of uh, sacrifice. And astonishingly, in Luke 7, Jesus will say of John the Baptist, of all the men born of women, no one was greater than John the Baptist. This guy living on the fringe of society, dressing in, in, in the poorest clothes possible, having the most rudimentary diet possible, Jesus says he's the greatest of all men. Which makes me think there's, there's a lesson here, there's, a, there's an invitation here, right, to recognize what it looks like to be completely sold out to the kingdom of heaven. For one, someone who knows that their citizenship does not exist here in any sense, but their citizenship is utterly connected to Christ and his kingdom, and therefore a, a willingness to part with the, the tangibles, the, the things that we love in this world, and to live a life of radical simplicity. Frankly, I think the church desperately needs more John the Baptizers, uh, more people who are so informed by the kingdom of heaven that every aspect of their life begins to take on that form. I was challenged when I think about John the Baptist, and I heard a, a story that made me think of John the Baptizer story in a particular way this, this weekend. We celebrated Christmas with both my parents and with Jennifer's parents, and it was a great opportunity to have fellowship with them uh, in the midst of all the, the COVID craziness that exists. But Jennifer's dad, Ken, was telling a story uh, about when he was in college. 
he had started at Baylor. And in order to make money over the summer, he uh, sold books and Bibles door to door with a company that would train you in sales and then drop you somewhere in the, in the United States. And you would have a particular territory to work over the course of the summer and try to save towards going to college. And so he did this, I think, for multiple summers, but this was um, his first summer out, and he was dropped off in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which I don't know if Jennifer's dad had ever been out of Texas up to this point. And if he had, he certainly hadn't been to the Northeast because he described it as being in an alien land. And so eventually he's been through his training, he's landed in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he's walking up to his first house. And he's approaching the house. He can hear uh, the married couple in the house screaming at each other, just in a, an all-out right, uh, fight. And so he's getting more and more nervous as he approaches the door. But part of his nervousness and the anxiety he feels is there was like a mythology to the first house. So the company said you had to make a sale at the first house, and that would dictate a good summer, a good and profitable summer. But if you failed to make a sale at the first house, you were going to have a terrible summer. So he's walking up to this house with the couple screaming, thinking this is going to be a terrible and horrific summer. And he knocks on the door, and then the couple proceeds to fight and scream at each other over who's going to go answer the door. And eventually the wife comes to the door and opens it and proceeds to just scream at him to let her know exactly what she thought of his arrival at that particular time and to slam the door in his face. Imagine, there goes the summer, according to the mythology. He said he, he stood there and started to think, and he started to, to think about how he had had a good year at Baylor, and he started to think, well, I'm probably not going back because I'm not going to make any money this summer, and if I don't make any money, I can't resume my studies and And he started to realize, right, what was at stake and what was on the line. And he started to think about some of his sales training. And so he gathered himself together and he marched around the side of the house uh, to the back door. And he said by the time he got there, he knocked on that door like he owned that house. And the woman in disbelief, right, at this person person who had just been undressed at her front door is showing up at her back door. And she comes to the door. And he says, ma'am, I sure hope you're not as angry at me as the woman who answered the front door. And she just shook her head. And whether in in utter disbelief that this young man would walk around the house and give it another try or because she was embarrassed for the way that she acted, she invited him in and they bought a few books from him. And the rest of the summer went just fine, or at least as far as I know. Can you imagine how hard it was, though, to decide to go to the back door. I would have been out of there. But what Ken started to think about was the bigger story and his orientation at being at Baylor and wanting to finish at Baylor and and proceed down that course and where it would go. Realized this is something that I have to do in order to keep going down that course. And so he gathered himself together and walked to the back door. And the reason that story is significant for me, even as I think about John the Baptist, is how hard was it for John the Baptist to relocate to the wilderness, to eat only locusts and honey, uh, to to be someone who who would not in any terms be considered as part of, of the story, who almost certainly had decided to be celibate for the course of his life, right? This is a profoundly unique prophetic individual, right? And 
that kind of individual is only faithful because they are oriented by the larger picture. Because they know that God is up to something very particular and it's being carried out through them. And his orientation is about the kingdom of heaven which is arriving rather than the kingdom of this house or that car or this job or this success. John's orientation is to the kingdom of heaven which enables him to do hard things. And that's what it is for us, right? We don't always necessarily feel like we, we are bearing good fruit and can run out and manufacture fruit, but we run back to Jesus. And we understand that our roots must be sunk deeply in him. And out of that comes a willingness, right? Bearing good fruit isn't always easy. It comes a willingness to engage in the hard things. Now, some, somebody will always say when I say this, isn't this salvation by works? Aren't you just saying that we have to go out and do it in order to, uh, to be saved and to be in God's good stead. And I'm really not. But sometimes you have to discipline yourself even when you don't want to do it. See, the, op- the other side of error that people make all the time is, oh, I don't feel like I'm in the right place to do this act. Therefore, I can't do it until my heart is in the right place because then it will just be a work of false righteousness. What nonsense, right? When you are a husband, and you don't feel like loving your wife, but you buy her a card or flowers. What are you doing? You're trying to, to train your heart by doing the right thing until it arrives at the right place. When you're frustrated by your child or you're frustrated by your parent, but you intentionally seek out spending time with them to press through that, what are you doing? You're training your heart right, so that it's cultivated to the point that as you sink yourself in Christ, yes, you're in that practice of bearing that fruit, even as it might become even more and more mature and beautiful. And so this is the, the invitation to us, right? Even as we come to the table this morning, we need to hear John's words because we too are waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven. We too are waiting for the coming of the Messiah, his second coming. And in that we need John's words and his judgment to come upon all of us in our pharisaical and sadducaical spirits. We need to be reminded to keep fruit and bearing with repentance. And we need to be reminded that in order to do that, we have to run to the one who takes the baptism of fire on our behalf that we might be made new in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the incarnation. And we thank you that you ran into the world not simply to, um, to be man, but to be a man who would die to be a man who would be exiled by his people, to be a man who had to do harder things than John did, to be a man who would usher in our redemption because you became our champion. And so we give you thanks and run to you even now as we come to this table. Let it be a time where we seek to put our roots more deeply in our union with you and out of that to see the fruit that you might manifest in our lives. We ask that you would lead us and guide us and that you would meet us in this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.